Case S01, E02, Paul Seglia. It's spring of 2003 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the US. April here has been a pretty chilly month. Close to freezing for the most part, except for a couple of unseasonably warm days. In a Harvard University dorm room, a 19-year-old student is scrolling through Craigslist looking for work. He spots an advert for website development and responds. The advertiser seeking help with his website is then 27-year-old ex-teacher and businessman Paul Seglia. After some email conversation in April 2003, Seglia agrees to pay the student $1,000, sets a deadline and writes up a contract. Nine months later, in February of 2004, the student launches a website. But Seglia's name is nowhere on it. This site will quickly become the biggest social media platform in the world. And the student will become one of the richest people on the planet. This student is, of course, Mark Zuckerberg, and the website is Facebook. Seven years pass by. Zuckerberg has long since dropped out of Harvard and moved to California to focus on Facebook. It is a decision that will prove to be more than worthwhile. Let's consider 2010 alone. In July of this year, Facebook will hit half a billion users. In October, Vanity Fair's annual list of the top 100 most influential people of the information age will put 26-year-old Zuckerberg in first place. And in December, Time Magazine's annual list of the 100 wealthiest and most influential people in the world will include Zuckerberg for the first time and he will continue to appear in this ranking every year afterward to the present day. On the surface then, it would seem that Zuckerberg is literally a living embodiment of the American dream. But behind the scenes, there are the first tremors of a potential nightmare. In June 2010, Paul Seglia files a lawsuit. In this suit, Seglia claims that he paid Zuckerberg $1,000 for a project called The Facebook, and that his contract entitles him to 50% of this site. He also claims that a further clause in the contract awards him an additional 1% interest in the site for every day it was late past the January implementation deadline. In total, Seglia is suing for 84% of Facebook. Zuckerberg, meanwhile, agrees that he did indeed do work for Seglia at around this time, but on an entirely unrelated website known as Street Facts. Seglia, however, claims to have a receipt for the $1,000, an email trail, and a copy of a contract for the Facebook to prove his claim. Surely no one would be so audacious as to invent such a wildly implausible story. Would they? If true, this would be a bombshell. Zuckerberg would likely be bankrupted overnight. The world's biggest and most powerful website, Facebook, would effectively change hands. And Seglia would be catapulted into unimaginable wealth and power. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection, and language mysteries. 
You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, links, and a transcript at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. During the trial, alongside plenty of other evidence from forensic digital analysis of computers, linguistic evidence is presented by Seglia in the form of emails supposedly between himself and Zuckerberg. Intriguingly, in those online conversations between Zuckerberg and Seglia, there are statements that further support the terms within the contract that Seglia also claimed to have with Zuckerberg. For instance, an email allegedly from Zuckerberg to Seglia sent on the 2nd of February 2004, a few weeks after the site was supposedly meant to be implemented, states, I'd like to suggest that you drop the penalty completely and we officially return to 50-50 ownership. The following day, on the 3rd of February, Seglia then supposedly replies, Okay, fine, Mark, 50-50, just as long as we start making some money from this thing. Then on the 4th, Zuckerberg supposedly emails, Paul, the Facebook.com opened for students today. The 4th of February is indeed the day that Facebook actually launched. Seglia replies the same day with some congratulations, a suggestion to remove the initial the from the site name, and some ideas for monetizing the site through selling branded merchandise. Two days later, on the 6th of February, Zuckerberg emails back. Sorry it's taken me a few days to respond. Now that the site's live, I feel I must take creative control and I just cannot risk injuring my site's reputation by cheapening it with your idea of selling college junk. Nor do I wish to spend my time shipping out coffee mugs to rich alumni. The site is cool as it is and I don't care about making any money on it right now. I just want to see if people will use it. If I had the rest of the money I was owed by you for all that extra work I did, I wouldn't even need to make money at all on this site. That is money I am entitled to and is rightfully mine. Two months later, on the 6th of April, Zuckerberg supposedly follows up with another email to Seglia. Paul, I have become too busy to deal with the site and no one wants to pay for it, so I am thinking of just taking the server down. My parents have a fund that I can tap into for my college expenses and I would just like to give you your $2,000 back and call it even for the rest of the money you owe me for the extra work. At this point, I won't even really be able to work on the Facebook until summer. There are several other emails besides, and you can read all of those that are available via links provided in the case notes. To save you some time, though, the main of the correspondence is contained in document 39. So far, it seems like Seglia might have a pretty good case. But there's a catch. Under normal circumstances, if you're dealing with an email trail, a forensic computer analyst would typically check the email headers. So this is the information about when the email was sent, what servers it was routed through, who it was sent to, and so forth. And you could cross-reference these headers with the server logs at, say, Harvard University, where Zuckerberg was. But Seglia claims that he kept these emails saved in three different Word files. So, in other words, in some form or another, he was copying and pasting them into Word, or he was file save as choosing Word, whatever he was doing, there are no headers. Still, this doesn't automatically mean that the emails are fake. It does make it much harder for Seglia to prove their authenticity, though. In response, Zuckerberg's defence team hire a forensic linguist. Their job? Analyse the emails that Seglia claims Zuckerberg wrote 
and compare them with the language of emails known to be by Zuckerberg. Would the language be similar, or would it be quite different? Facebook's legal team hire forensic linguist Gerald McMenamin. At the time of this case being heard, that is in 2011, Gerald McMenamin is Professor Emeritus of Linguistics and former chair of the Department of Linguistics at California State University, Fresno. McMenamin's approach to forensic linguistics is to use forensic stylistic analysis. What is this? Well, in simple terms, this uses a subdiscipline within linguistics known as stylistics to study variation in language. In essence, stylistics is interested in the choices we make at each point in a text. Let's take a really simple example from this podcast, for instance. Take case notes. Do we write case notes as two distinct words, case, space, notes? Do we write it as a hyphenated word, so case dash notes? Or do we write it as a complete word with neither spaces nor dashes in the middle? That's just one word and one choice that you can make. Do we make this choice every single time or do we vary? Do we capitalise the C and the N or do we always write it as lowercase? There are many different ways that we can realise this in text. Alternatively, do we use am not, cannot, do not? Or do we use aren't, can't, don't? Do we write should have or should of? I know some of you cringed when I said that, but just to stress, this isn't about picking up errors or correcting people. This is about spotting habits and preferences, or in short, this is about style. So these are choices or habits that come through in every level of our language, right down to where you put in your full stops and all the way up to how wordy you are in, for instance, your podcast scripts. Are you a person that writes those one-word text messages, literally just the letter K? Or are you those people who send text messages that are effectively tiny essays? What's crucial to note here is that one feature alone doesn't tell us very much. There's little point in only observing that you write while and I write whilst. There's also not much point in noting by itself that I say knock a door run and you say knock knock ginger. And there's not much use in merely stating that I routinely don't capitalise, I do, but imagine I didn't, whereas you always capitalise everything beautifully. Any single feature alone is not going to be unique to either of us. Either. Or is it either? But anyway, moving on. Stylistics doesn't care for one feature alone. It is interested in collections of features, constellations, that begin to characterise an individual's overall style or idiolect. The more features that you can find within a text, the more you build an idea of that person's habitual choices. So back to this case, McMenamin's findings are outlined in a relatively short analysis contained in document 50. So as I've said, McMenamin's task was a simple one. He was given 35 emails known to be by Zuckerberg, and he had these to compare against 11 emails that Seglia alleges Zuckerberg wrote. But there's a little oddity here. These 11 disputed emails, as it happens, are sourced from the amended complaint, that is, document 39. McMenamin writes this in his report. He puts, I was asked to determine, to the extent possible, the authorship of a series of questioned writings excerpted into an amended complaint in this matter, 
what's the issue here? Why am I bothering about this? Well, it's not really clear why McMenamin wasn't given clean, proper copies of all the emails by Seglia's team. Why did he have to rely on the ones in Document 39? Those emails have clearly been altered in a few different ways, so in some of them, glosses have been inserted to make reference clearer. Multiple times, SIC in brackets, or SIC in brackets, uh, usually used to indicate an error. SIC has been added lots of times throughout some of these emails, presumably to indicate that some sort of typo or other is an original feature of that email. And one time, just after paragraph 32, the email starts with a three-dot ellipsis, so three suspension points, which usually indicates that some preceding text has been cut off, perhaps because it hasn't been deemed relevant. So perhaps the person who put the document together has just started the email halfway through and used these dots to indicate that some text has gone. Similarly, paragraph 41 contains a very short example from an email that ends with an ellipsis, and that looks as if the same thing has happened, that some text has been cut off the end, perhaps because it's irrelevant. So it's very unclear in both of those cases where those ellipses have come from, who was the author of those suspension points, and we'll come back to this in a bit. On the other side of the fence, we also don't get much information about the 35 known Zuckerberg emails. We find out that they were all from the same time period, and that some were ones that Zuckerberg did indeed send to Seglia, but about the others, all we are told is that they went to related parties. What their purpose was, quite who those related parties were, how formal or informal they were, what device they were composed on, how long they were on average, all of these factors are not described, and I'll also come back to that in a little while as well. Overall then, McMenamin had 35 known emails from Zuckerberg to use, and this was his comparison corpus against which he could compare the 11 questioned Zuckerberg emails that had been extracted from document 39. McMenamin's report is document 50, and if you scroll down that to exhibit B, McMenamin lays out 11 features that he focused on. These features are two issues of punctuation, three of spelling, five of syntax, and one feature at the discourse level. I'll go through most of these features, but I'm not going to go through every single one in painstaking detail. So what did McMenamin find? In short, Zuckerberg consistently uses apostrophes in contractions and possessives correctly, but in the emails produced by Seglia, there were four instances when this didn't happen when they should have. Zuckerberg writes the three-dot suspension point, that is, the ellipsis, with no spaces between the dots, nor between the dots and the word that comes directly beforehand. However, one ellipsis in Seglia's emails has spaces between each dot, and the other comes after a space. Like I said, I'm going to come back to this again in a moment. Zuckerberg writes terms like backend and frontend, and also the word cannot as one word, whereas in one case in the disputed emails, backend is split into two words, literally back, space, end, whilst cannot is split into two words multiple times. Zuckerberg capitalises the word internet twice, but the one time this occurs in the disputed emails, it is not capitalised. Zuckerberg never produces a run-on sentence, but the disputed emails contain at least nine examples. Zuckerberg frequently opens sentences with words like okay, and, anyhow, also, but, then, however. The disputed emails, by contrast, use words like further, additionally, thus, again, first, mostly, Paul. Zuckerberg consistently uses commas after an if clause, in 15 possible places where these can occur, they are present 13 times. 
In the disputed emails, meanwhile, there are three possible places for the commas to occur after an if clause, and they never do. Aside from these differences, like any good forensic linguist, McMenamin also observes points of similarity, and he notes two of them. Both the known and the disputed sets of emails each include an instance of an email finishing with the word thanks! exclamation mark. And one of the disputed emails started with the word sorry once, whilst emails known to be by Zuckerberg started with the word sorry four times. So what can we say about this analysis? Well, the first thing that we have to stress is we're obviously not going to get every tiny bit of detail in a report aimed at the court. Courts generally want clean, clear results. They don't want all the lengthy minutiae that can surround these results. If there's something to be challenged in the methodology or the execution or what have you, that's for the cross-examining lawyers to pull apart if and when the forensic linguist takes the stand. However, just on a read-through of this, there are definitely things I would ask more questions about and I'd be really interested to discuss. So let's take capitalization of the word internet. Plenty of software has a penchant for auto-correcting perceived errors in text, including fixing, I'm saying this in quote marks, I'm doing air quotes as I say that, things that are otherwise fine. In fact, it's such a common issue that there are entire websites dedicated to autocorrects that have gone horribly or hilariously wrong. Zuckerberg's known emails could well have been composed using an email editor that does exactly this. If we put him on another device that doesn't do this and made him type internet, we might find that he never actually capitalises this word. What we could have here, potentially, we don't know, but what we could have is interference from the device used to compose the message. In fact, depending on the autocorrects and the message, it is sometimes possible to tentatively infer an operating system or a device that has been used to compose a message in the first place. A second issue is the sheer opportunity for recurrence. So this is an issue not only of length, since longer texts generally offer more chances for a feature to crop up, this is also one of context. So let's consider, for instance, the words backend and frontend, which Zuckerberg apparently writes as one word and the disputed emails write as two separate words. If you're not talking about user front-end interfaces or back-end setups or what have you, then there's not really an opportunity for those words to occur. Similarly, apostrophes. Imagine if Zuckerberg's preference is to write things like I am or she would rather than I'm or she'd. Because of this, there is less call for the use of apostrophes and the fewer times it happens, the fewer opportunities you have to get it wrong. So just through other choices, it could seem that Zuckerberg is very consistently correct in these, but actually he might not have given himself many opportunities to get it wrong. Now, obviously we don't know without seeing the Zuckerberg known emails, but it's something to take into consideration. And really the take home message for this is that to really understand the results about a feature, you have to have a good idea of how often the feature could have occurred versus how often it did or did not actually occur. That gives you the bigger picture on that feature. And thirdly, remember that three-dot suspension point that I mentioned? As I said, there were two in the questioned emails and they crop up in McMenamin's feature list. But when you look at them in the complaint, in the amended complaint document 39, as I mentioned, one occurs at the start of an email being quoted and it looks as if it's been inserted to signal that some part of the email has been cropped for brevity. And the other, in exactly the same way, occurs at the end of a very short email quote and it looks as if it's been inserted to mean the same thing. So this feature might actually be noise and interference from whoever put document 39 together. That's kind of awkward. It takes us back to the issue of McMenamin should have been given a clean, clear set of data to work with. 
To finish off, however, it's vital that we return to this notion that forensic stylistic analysis works on the basis of combining a multitude of features together. No single feature in isolation makes a case, and therein lies the strength of the analysis. If one feature is weak by itself, or even discounted for some reason, there are, or there should be, a host of other features that still carry the analysis. So we don't find someone's style in a single choice. We find an individual's overall style in hundreds, thousands, possibly tens of thousands of linguistic choices that we are making every single day. Back to McMenamin's findings. So remember, he did pick out two points of similarity. He noted that some of the emails start with sorry and some of them end with thanks. But it's pretty clear to see that these are extremely weak features, even the two together. We could find thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people all over the world doing these exact same things in their emails right now. By contrast, the pattern of differences, which range from these run-on sentences to comma and apostrophe use and more besides, is relatively compelling. What these results cannot tell us is who did author those 11 questioned emails, the ones that happen to be in Word documents. It won't tell us who sat and typed those. But McMenamin's comparison does make a good case that across a range of dimensions, those 11 emails produced by Seglia don't match the 35 emails known to be by Zuckerberg. McMenamin's overall conclusion then is unsurprising. In his expert report, Document 50, he gives his opinion thus. Based on the contrastingly distinct style markers which the questioned excerpts and the known Zuckerberg writings demonstrate, as well as the presence of no more than two minimally significant similarities between the questioned and known Zuckerberg writings, I conclude that the known writings of Mr Zuckerberg demonstrate a sufficiently significant set of differences vis-à-vis the questioned writings to constitute evidence that Mr Zuckerberg is not the author of the excerpted questioned references. From Seglia's perspective, this case all very quickly starts to fall apart. In rapid succession, he is fired by a raft of law firms that he has hired to represent him, including DLA Piper, Connors and Villado, and Lips Matthias Wexler Friedman. Whether spurred on by McMenamin's forensic linguistics report or because of their own discoveries in the interim, some of these firms directly cite the fact that Seglia is using forged evidence as their reasons for dropping him. In turn, Facebook sues a number of Seglia's past legal representatives, alleging that these lawyers knew, or should have known, that Seglia was a con man, that his lawsuit was a malicious fraud, and that he was using forged documents. In late 2012, Seglia is arrested and charged, a GPS tracker is fitted to his leg to monitor his whereabouts, and his bail is set at $250,000. Seglia's mother, father and brother become guarantors for the bail bond, And for those who are not clear what this means, if Seglia breaches his bail conditions, he will land his family with a debt of a quarter of a million dollars. For a few years at least, this seems to work. But then, in early 2015, the authorities become suspicious that something has happened. Agents break into his home and, according to reports in the media, they find his GPS tracker strapped to a rotating ceiling fan. Seglia's leg and the rest of him are nowhere to be found. It seems that Seglia has somehow managed to get the tracker off, but perhaps suspicious that it will send out an alert if it doesn't move enough, he has found a method to fool it into thinking that it is still being worn. This has then bought him enough time to abscond with his wife, his two sons, and even his Jack Russell, Buddy. A warrant is issued for Seglia's arrest and reward money is offered, but he appears to have vanished without a trace. 
Seglia remains at large for the next three years, somehow successfully keeping himself and his family hidden. In 2018, however, the authorities track Seglia, now aged 45, down to a location in Ecuador, South America. At the time of recording this podcast, Seglia is being represented by Roberto Calderon and he is currently fighting extradition back to the US. If returned to the US, he will likely face charges of wire and mail fraud as a direct consequence of the Facebook lawsuit. And these are offences that can carry a sentence of up to 40 years in jail. This episode of On Claire was entirely researched, narrated and produced by me, Dr Claire Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for these people at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac. UK forward slash onclair all one word and you can follow the podcast on twitter at underscore onclair all one word or if you like you can follow me on twitter at dr claire h